Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. It's going to seem awful odd to you, but why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 53 with me this morning, Isaiah chapter 53. So we approach the table this morning together to worship God through doing one of the two ordinances that Christ gave us, one being baptism, the other being the Lord's Supper or communion as we call it. I think it would do us well to do just what he asked us to do as we approach the table for this, and that is to remember that which he has done. If you have found Isaiah chapter 53, if you would stand with me, and let's read all of that chapter together this morning, Isaiah chapter 53, and it reads like this, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces before him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a great portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he has numbered with and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and many and made intercession for the transgressors. Father, this morning we open our hearts and minds to you that you may speak to us, that you may search our soul by the work of your Holy Spirit and reveal to us those things which are sin in our life and hinder our worship with you and break our fellowship with you. This morning, as those come to our heart and our mind, we confess those to you, desiring to worship you in spirit and truth, and trusting that you will forgive us just as you say, and go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. As we approach your table this morning, Father, let us do it in a worthy manner, having first dealt with that which is within, before we come to that which we remember of your Son, Jesus Christ. Open our spiritual heart and mind, that we may hear and see you this morning in a very special way for your glory that we may be image bearers of your Son, Jesus, and worship you in spirit and truth. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
Don't know that I've ever used this passage for communion, but it's been heavy on my heart this week, so we'll see where God takes us for just the next few minutes. You know, we've been in the book of Acts for some time walking through the book of Acts, and I find it interesting that there are a number of times in the very beginning of the book of Acts that it tells us what that new church looks like. Remember the book of Acts is all about Jesus having left this earth and sending down in, in His absence the Holy Spirit to indwell those believers that are there. And you, you see that action of the Holy Spirit coming in chapter 1 of, of Acts. And, and from chapter 1 of Acts it flows into the gospel being presented by, by those to a lost and dying world. The gospel message being presented at all costs, whether it's imprisonment or threat of, of death, whatever it may be. And many times as we read through the book of Acts, but especially even in those passages that, that we've already uh, looked at in Acts, especially Acts chapter 2, it says things like this in Acts chapter 2, 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. We see a picture of the church as it started. And, and one of the things the church did together as we do corporately together this morning is it continued in that apostles' doctrine. What it, what it means to be saved. The, what, it, what it means to need salvation. What it, what it means that, that God sent His only begotten Son to, to save us. And then how, how do you grow in that to the glory of God and become a worshiper of Him? And, and so this doctrine. But it was also this fellowship, this time, this time of spending time with one another. I think it was brought up in our Sunday school class this morning that separation from the body of Christ causes your faith to, to waver because you don't have that close fellowship. And what a true statement. That fellowship with one another just increases our faith in who God is as we hear and see what God's doing in others' lives around us. Then it says there was this breaking of bread. That's actually a euphemism there for what we're about to do today, this communion, this, this thing that, that Jesus said that we should do together in remembrance. And then it says that we continue in prayers both one for another, but also as also was brought up in Sunday school this morning, in, in thankfulness to God for what He's already done. You know how often we ask God for things, and when He does it, we forget we ask, and we never say thank you. <laughs> It'd be tough to have children that ask for things, and when you gave it to them, they walked away as if they were had that as their right and never said thank you, wouldn't it? And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we do that as, as the children of God. You know, it, it tells us that we are to remember that which Christ did as He sat with those disciples the night before His death and as they took Passover together and Passover was changed into what we celebrate today, communion, as He took that last cup of blessing I talked to the children about this morning. And as He said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of Me. I think that's what led me to this Isaiah passage. Remembrance of what Christ did. Let's look together at what He did for us. As it starts off that passage, which by the way, Isaiah is, is a very interesting book. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Do you know how many chapters are in the book of Isaiah? 66. It's divided into two parts. There's 27 in one part. The rest remain in the other part. It's a division that looks a lot like you hold in your hand this morning because in your hand you're holding 66 books of the Bible. Divisions in the Bible are just like the divisions in Isaiah. There is a part about judgment. 
and God judging and and continuing to work with and and trying to draw back and and judging his people and that's what we call the Old Testament. Guess what? There's an equal number of chapters in Isaiah about judgment. Then it switches over to there being redemption, salvation in Isaiah. It's an equal number of chapters as there is books in the New Testament. What a beautiful picture. It's been called the miniature Bible. The miniature Bible. I don't think there's any place in the Bible that you can get the full gospel in 12 verses other than here. This is an awesome place that you can put 12 verses together for the entire gospel message. The entire gospel message. Actually, it carries right on out as he goes through, but these 12 verses are something amazing. There's something I found out as I studied the very first part, just to put it in the context for you. I'd often thought about this book and thought about the fact that it was prophetic, and it is. It is a prophetic book. Let me give you a shocker. I've often thought it was a prophecy about Jesus coming, um, but it's more of a prophecy of something else than it is about Jesus. It's, it's, the prophecy, it's the prophecy of what those who come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will say. This book, <laughs> this chapter, is quoted quite often in the New Testament in relation to those who one day will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, specifically in Isaiah's case, as this is being written to the Jews. It, it's actually their confession. How do we know that? All the verbs in the first uh, ten, all the verbs in the first ten verses are past tense, not future. Past tense. What do I mean? He starts off and says, "Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?" It doesn't say to whom is going to believe or to whom the arm is going to be revealed. It says, whom has it already been revealed? He makes this a start of, of his confession in this, this past tense, and it's in all reality our confession. You know, to whom has the report of Jesus Christ been revealed? We know to all whether it be through creation, whether it be through the preaching of the gospel, everyone understands there is this void, as been often said, in a heart, because you know there is something out there. There is something greater than you. There's, whether you're a pygmy in the middle of, of Africa or whether you live in New York City, you're always seeking for something else. They go into these tribes that have never heard the gospel, yet they have a God because they know there is one somewhere. And it says, so, so who has believed and to whom has the armor of the Lord been revealed? So who has believed? Who has believed? Those who first understand that they need a Savior. Those who understand that they've sinned against the Holy God. Those who understand there is only one Savior and that is Jesus Christ. If you come to understand that you need a Savior in your life because of the wreck that you've made it, <laughs> Jesus will be revealed to you. The Word promises that. So, so He makes this... Confession, this beginning, who, who is it that confesses? It's us. He goes on in the second verse, says, Who shall grow up before him as a tender root? And he goes through and he makes these statements. The statements about a Jesus. You know, have you ever noticed that every time Jesus is painted, nothing against you artists, Mitchell, but they paint him as one lovely looking character, don't they? Flowing hair, beautiful features, blue eyes. Just a man's man. 
There's only one problem with that. This tells us he grew up as a, a, a tender plant, which just a small, not strong enough to even hold up in a storm type of plant. It says a root out of dry ground. A root out of dry ground, that means nobody was even tending it. It's just something that, it's a suckling. It's something that popped up out of nowhere. If, if it were to come up in the middle of a field full of, of uh produce that was being grown we'd pluck it and throw it to the side because we wouldn't want it to just pop up out of nowhere it goes on to say he's got no form or comeliness <laughs> when we see him there's no beauty that we should even desire him so we paint this picture of jesus being this thing that just him walking past would make people be drawn to him because he's just so handsome and so strong and so good looking but the word tells us here that he was sent, he was, if anything, average or below average in, in his appearance. When you, when you looked at him, there was nothing that made you want to fall in line and follow him. He wasn't a General MacArthur. <laughs> he, he wasn't anyone like that. He, he was just a normal, if not abnormal or below normal type person. And it says that he was sent, and there was nothing about him physically that we were drawn to. It wasn't his charisma. It wasn't his ability to speak. It wasn't his beauty. And because of that, because those are the things that we attach our, our, our future to, so to speak, our, our senses, the things that attract us are those things that are beautiful or strong. Or if we're going to root for a football team, we root for the one that's got the best players. Because we want to be on the winning side. We look for that which looks to be the best. And because Jesus wasn't, he tells us in verse 3, that we rejected him. We rejected him. Think about Israel. Think about the Jews. Here he walked among them. And it even says in his own hometown, nobody would listen. The ones who knew him best. Who saw him. Who looked upon him, saw him grow up, they, they wouldn't even believe him. Oh, guess what? We're all in that same boat. We all rejected him. That's sin. That's sin. We rejected this Jesus. We chose ourselves as, as our Lord, not him. And it says that he was a man of sorrows and grief and goes on to say we hid our face. We even despised him. What strong language. What strong language. But as we remember what Christ did, I think it does us good to remember who we were before Christ, doesn't it? You know, salvation to me, I've told you a hundred times, the most powerful thing God has ever done is not raise someone from the dead, it's to change an old wretched sinner like me into a righteous person. That's the most powerful thing He's ever done. So I can relate to that rejection of the spies of Jesus. Then He goes on to say in, in the fourth verse, He says, Surely He's borne our griefs. He goes down into that fifth verse and he talks about he was wounded for our transgressions. This is the word in, in, in Hebrew really is the word for sin. This, this sin against God. He, it's, it's, it's a, that he was wounded. It's almost as if the nails that were driven in his hands, we were holding the hammer because of those sins. But then it goes on to say he was bruised for our iniquities and and what is the iniquities? It, it's really that immorality. It, it, iniquity is kind of the Hebrew word for bend in half to, to ruin. So, so not only did he die for those, those sins that we did, but even the 
immorality of our life, those things that we chose above Him for satisfaction that He should have been the satisfaction for. It says the chastisement for our peace was upon Him. You know what Christ did when when He bore our stripes and healed us, died for our transgressions and our iniquities? He gave us an opportunity for peace with God. We talked about it again in Sunday school this morning, how it's, it's hard to wrap your head around the gospel. Why would God do it? How does God love us that much? Yet it was brought up, you know what, in the Garden of Eden before sin entered? You know, we knew what it was to truly, fully be loved by God. But then this, this disruption came into our life that Christ died upon a cross and forgiven us of our sins, and even more than that, changing us uh, from the inside out so that we're not desiring sin, we're desiring Him, that, that iniquity being gone gives us an opportunity for this peace with God. And isn't the whole world looking for peace? I mean, let's face it, everybody wants peace. Nobody wants war. You have to be an awful evil person to always want to be fighting and arguing and bickering. You really want this peace. And it says in in 6 that we, like sheep, have gone astray. What do sheep do? Sheep do what sheep do. (laughs) They're not a very intelligent animal. They wander around doing whatever. Except for a shepherd, sheep probably wouldn't live very long out in the wild. They have no defense mechanism. They have to be sheared occasionally, not just for the wool, but for their own life. If, if they don't shear their rear end a few times, they become so bushy that things kind of get out of whack and they die from the inability to have bodily functions. I was trying to find a proper way to put that in the, the pulpit. I didn't think that one through before I started that course. But, uh, but they have to be—they have to have their their, their wool taken. Okay. Have you ever seen a sheep that hadn't been sheared? I saw a picture one day of what he looked like. He was like this big around, and they they shaved him. And he looked like a cat. But what does a sheep do? A sheep just does what a sheep does. Isn't that a picture of us? Without God coming along and taking off some of those things, we just do what we do. But there's also another thing about a sheep. Where does the sheep place its devotion? It's shepherd. The one who shears him. The one who cleans him up. The one who puts the salve on the on his, his eyes and around his face so the flies stay out. The one who takes the 99 and puts them inside of the pen and goes after the one and brings him back. The one that takes that sheep that's cast or laying over on its back and can't get up and, and he picks that sheep up and carries him back. See, a sheep is a sheep, yes, both in a sense of needing a shepherd, but then when it has a shepherd, it is completely devoted to a shepherd. So there's two ways to look at this sheep that have gone astray and turned to our own way. But then it says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A sheep that have gone our own direction and wanted to wander off and do whatever, guess what the Lord did? He came along, he sheared us, he picked us up, he placed us on his shoulder and he put us back in the fold. See, we turned from him, yet he turned to us. He turned to us. It says in that seventh verse, it says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Often we read that and we don't really think the whole thing through. 
if you're brought to trial, and you know that the penalty of, of you being found guilty at the trial would be death. Not just death, but a torturous death. How many of us would first and foremost hire us a lawyer? I think we all would. How many of us would want our side of the story to be told? I think we all would. Yet when Jesus was taken to trial and was accused, how many sides of the story were told? Just one. And it wasn't his. He stood before the ones that he had created to be a worshiper of him and listened to the ridicule and the despising and the lies. And it says he was silent as a sheep being led to be sheared. He was silent. All the way to the cross, he had the ability at any moment to call down legions of angels to rescue him. Yet he was silent. When he was spit upon, when he was beaten, when the nails were driven in his hands, he was silent. He said seven things from the cross. All of those were in glory to his father, so to speak, in all things that he said, right down to the point that he said, Father, forgive them, for they have no idea what they're doing. See, even when he spoke, it wasn't on his own behalf. It was on the behalf of others for the glory of his father. And it says he was led there like a lamb, led to the slaughter like a sheep before sheared. He was silent tells me that Jesus willingly did what he did because he loved me. He wasn't forced. He did it because he chose to. Wow, what a picture. What a picture of the love of God. He goes on in the 8th verse and following, and he talks about him being taken from prison, from judgment, declaring it unto further generations finally mentions the fact that there would be a death in the story. It says for the middle of verse 8, for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Finally, after he goes through talking about the fact that Jesus was no beauty to follow, that, that he had come silently to the cross, that he had bore all these things on my behalf, it tells us now that he did it all the way to death. And he did it. He did it because of my sin. Wow. He goes on in verse 9 and says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. We all know what that means, don't we? There was a guy, after Jesus hung on the cross, when they desired to have his body down before started their official Passover day, they came along and said, Give him to me, I'll bury him. New Testament says he was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. Over 700 years before Jesus ever hung on a cross and died, Isaiah said he would be buried with the rich. <laughs> think it was a happen chance? I don't think so. It says he was buried with the rich. It says he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. It says that he was sinless. He didn't... Stand up for himself. He didn't lie about anything. This Christ was the perfect Lamb of God. 
Then it says in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. See, he became God's sacrifice. Just like we saw the picture on the mountain with the ram hung in the bush when he went to kill his son. It was pointing to this Jesus that it mentions here in Isaiah, saying it's God's sacrifice. This is what God desired for you and for me because of our sin. He says, you make us soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's just mentioned that he's going to die, and now it says he's going to see a seed. How many dead people see their grandchildren that aren't born before they die? Not many. Not any. <laughs> see, it's also alluding to the fact that death was not the end. It's pointing to the fact that God raised him from the dead, and that God will raise us from the dead He's pointing to the fact that we are a seed. And our days will be prolonged just like his days. And it says the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's when it switches tenses. Tenses in the verbs. And it goes into verse 11. It says, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Instead of saying this has been done, he now says this will be done. And he's speaking directly to us when he says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. What is the labor of his soul? Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's basically saying, I came to hang on a cross for those who will believe in me and be saved. I came not to judge. I came the first time. To save that which was lost. He's going to see the labor of his soul. It says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. See, there's a certain knowledge of this salvation that will go out into all the world. And we know that to be true as we saw in Acts as the church starts. He says, for he shall bear their iniquities. See, not only is he saying it's for those who have, he says it's for those who will. If you ever wondered, I've had people say, well, okay, he died for those up to the cross. What about those after? Nobody died on the cross. He died for all. Past, present, future. He died for all. He goes on to that 12th verse. And this is beautiful. This is where you should shout hallelujah. This is where the, the salvation of your heart should well up, whatever he says. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. A portion. A portion of What? <laughs> A portion of what? It's the servant's reward for his work. There's this spoils for his work and his toil, his, his spiritual victories that he's, he's won. And this points to what's said in the New Testament. When it says we're part of the family, there's a certain reward for us. There's these, these things that become ours because of Christ. It says we're joint heirs with Christ. Means his possessions become our possessions. It says that, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. And he has numbered, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made an intercession for the transgressors. See, we're part of the family. We're part of the family of God because of what Christ did upon the cross. As we approach the table this morning and take of that cup, 
and take of that bread, we'll remember that there is a body that was put on by Christ so that He could be like us. He would take away all of our excuses. He would take away every excuse that we've ever had that we can't stop sinning. Because if you know Jesus Christ, <laughs> you have Jesus Christ in you. If you become the image of Jesus Christ, therefore you will not sin. He, he put on that body and took that excuse away. He took that body to the cross and died a physical death for you and I. <laughs> he died a death for our sin so that we wouldn't have to die to death for our sin. The blood that flowed from his body was the remission for our sins. It washed away our sins. So it's this word of justification it's a lawyer term, it's a courtroom term where the judge looks at the guilty and sees the guilty as justified by that which has paid the penalty. When God looks from the throne at you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if your life has been washed with the blood that flowed from his body, when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. So as we partake this morning, let us first approach the throne of grace, understanding in our heart that it's very important we approach it in a worthy manner. Having dealt with those sins that are in our life, if there be something that has come to your mind even this morning as we walk through Isaiah together, it is imperative. It is imperative that we ask God for forgiveness of that sin. It is imperative that we approach the the communion table together seeking first and foremost to glorify God in what we do by remembering that which He did and only He could do through His Son, Jesus Christ. So this morning as we approach the table, with you bow with me in prayer? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.